Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and profit. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. Welcome to episode 43. I'm recording this on Friday the 18th of December, with the UK wondering whether the next few days of more relaxed lockdown rules will prove to be a mistake. I hope you and yours are all safe and you've managed to work out ways to socialise and balance physical and mental well-being. I've been busy getting the first few posts for my new series, The A to Z of the Circular Economy, which includes definitions from the glossary of my new Circular Economy handbook. I also did a short webinar on circular business models for the Indian Institute of Management in Jammu. After much procrastination, I'm finally making a bit of progress on my next book, and I'll be asking for volunteers to be beta readers, to read short sections and give me feedback on the content, and whether it's explaining things well. Ideally, I'd like to hear from entrepreneurs and small businesses. So enough of my updates, let's move on to today's episode with Richard James McCowan, who helps people use biomimicry to design better materials, products, buildings and cities. Richard and I met a few years ago and we worked together on several projects. We both support the Circular Economy Club as ambassadors and mentors and we're chapter leads for neighbouring Circular Economy Club regions. Richard leads York and I look after the Tees Valley. Richard is the founder and creative director of the Biomimicry Innovation Lab, with a mission to inspire and share how the natural world can deliver unique solutions by radically reducing the need for resources. Richard very kindly wrote a brilliant piece on biomimicry for the second edition of my Circular Economy Handbook. We talk about different aspects of biomimicry and how it can inform the design of objects, systems and much more including structure and materials, swarm behaviour, 3D printing and termites, self-repairing and exotic materials, and why origami is useful. Richard explains how nature uses structure for colour, which leads me to ask whether some of these developments are actually encouraging consumption. Have a listen, and I'll catch up with you at the end. Richard James McCowan is the founder of Biomimicry Innovation Lab, focusing on the food, manufacturing and built environment sectors. He's the co-founder of a non-profit Biomimicry UK and CEO of Smart Stable Limited, an equine technology startup. Alongside this, Richard is a visiting lecturer at a number of universities around the world. He combines this with extensive research development with international collaborators through the Design Society and the ISO standards in biomimetics. He's also taught at some of the top design schools, including the Royal College of Art in the UK, the Pratt Institute in America, the Valor Institute of Technology in India, and the Budapest University of Technology and Economics in Hungary. Richard is an award-winning designer with a passion for developing new models of innovation, 
to reduce costs, improve efficiency and resilience in the design and manufacturing process. Richard, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Hi, Catherine. Yeah, it's good to be on here finally. Thank you. <laughs> yep, so we've known each other for quite a few years now. And I'm going to start by asking you to unpack biomimicry for those who've not heard of it before. So biomimicry is really about understanding how nature solves problems and then translating this into our technical challenges we're trying to overcome. It could be a management structure all the way down to materials science, engineering, computers and things like that. And the way I approach it um, is very much looking at the systems perspective first off. So let's look at biological system, living systems, ecological systems or ecosystems, and then working down to the processes, the processes looking at you know, thermal regulation, self-organization. And then finally, you're looking down at individual functions, but then looking at how they're actually interlinked. So if you start off that way by looking at really at the trade-offs and relationships between everything, and then that steps all the way back up to systems again. Yeah, so there's, there's a lot to it. Um... And that's why people who are interested in using it as an approach um, need people like you who are well-versed in all the different theories and um, kind of interlinking processes and so on. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of an easy concept to get your head around in, um, at an outline level, um, but much more complicated to apply in practice, I guess. So how did you get into biomimicry to start with? Oh, that, that, yeah, that's a good one. I mean, this is a bit of a long story. But, um, yeah, it, it kind of got all the way back to when I was spending childhoods in the Scottish Highlands with my grandfather. And we would go out and um, explain the relationships between the rainfall, the soil, the plants, everything else, then running into the sea lochs and then the changes in that over time. You And then you would start to explain how the changes in the... Um, the base of the chemicals in the sea from um, food sources were given into the fish farms and how that was impacting onto the other sea life and wildlife into the you know the snails and other things like limpets and other things that then um, seals would eat as well but I remember doing a project at school when I was about 15 and we were then looking into air I was looking into aircraft and design so I studied a lot of different types of birds, and it's quite interesting. I came up with this design model of how's an aircraft, how can you improve an aircraft by looking at birds and flight and structures and things like that. And I thought nothing of it um, really for a few years, but it, it kept my pursuit of systems going all the way through retraining as, um, in finance and development in the property sector, then into um, getting made redundant in 2008, which was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because... Well, it allowed me to go and think, well, actually, I enjoy asset management, I enjoyed creativity more, and it got me into working in urban design after working in projects with Lego and some developers and shopping centre owners in Scandinavia. It wasn't until I retrained in urban design, and because it was a landscape-led department, that this click into the ecology and the landscape and urbanism kind of all came back together. And it just kind of from there, and it kind of ignited this curiosity about everything and anything. Um, and from that, I started Biomimicry UK when I was doing my PhD as a non-profit. co-founded it with a um, chap called David up in uh, Dundee, who's now moved back to Mexico. 
And my current organisation, I actually started um, on Christmas Day last year when I was sitting on the toilet and I had an idea about how to start. You know, I need a consultancy to allow me to do work internationally. And I figured if you start on the toilet, the only way is up, really, from there. <laughs> yeah, good one. It's amazing how many good ideas come um, when, you're, when you're in the bathroom in <laughs> pursuing various um, activities like showering and so on. Um, so, um, yeah, so give us, give us a few examples then to bring it to life for people. So maybe an example of using biomimicry approaches for um, creating better structures in building materials or um, things that we need to uh, be, um, you know, strong and lightweight, that kind of thing. Give us a few examples around that. Well, you could even go back to like things like Airbus, and they, they're making lightweight partitions based on tree growth and how slime molds forages. So they're looking at this kind of, they developed an algorithm that actually allowed you to look at um, form finding. So if you do look at trees, you can even go back to looking at Gaudi's Cathedral and how he used the minimum amount of materials. Because uh, material is expensive in the natural world, so you're putting it where it needs to be, but putting it in the right order. So things like that as well. I mean, going back to the Airbus, it's quite interesting. That drawing I told you about in project I did at school, if you look at that drawing and the Airbus's concept of the future of flight, it's almost like they stole uh, an idea from a 15-year-old to come up with a concept. Just saying, that, that, I'm not that, actually that, accusing them. That 15-year-old um, having the initials of RJM, perhaps. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, it's quite funny if you look at the, the sketch and... Um, you know, it was very, very similar to what they came up with. Um, but I mean, yeah, there's examples like that, looking at lightweight piping and um, 3D printing now with regenerative, uh, sorry, generative algorithms allows you to actually build in these models of um, form finding and using the materials. And the future of that is going to be going along the lines of um, actually can we then learning from swarms to then construction in the future as well. Mm. Well, that sounds that sounds like it's moving on to another level of um, kind of uh, intellectual challenge completely. So, just coming back to the structure, then, give us a couple of examples of um, you know a plant or um, a tree or something, and and kind of uh, you know unpack how that structure then translates into something that we're making out of metals or plastics or whatever. One of my favourite examples, because it's relatable, is we've all drunk water from a water bottle. Now, there's a company called Logoplast, and they've been working with, they design and then manufacture um, plastic bottles. They've manufactured the Eco Ocean Plastic, so Ecover Ocean Plastic Bottle. And um, one of the projects they worked on in, in Portugal was actually, how can we make the lightest, fully recyclable plastic bottle in the world? Now, many of you will say, well, that's great. Surely you should be using metal bottles or fully um, reusable ones, but that's something that you have to consider in the life cycle of the company as well, shifting away. So they actually came up with a strategy using how can we make a bottle as lightweight as possible, ties into the branding of the company, and also can use um, can designed and manufactured in six months and be using the existing manufacturing techniques. And what they did is they actually looked to um, pine trees and white pine trees uh, specifically. And if you look at um, a lot of, um, especially yeah, the pine trees growing in um, windy conditions, they actually twist. So they're using the same amount of material, but then they're twisting. 
And as the twisting is actually, it's making them stronger and, and more um, resistant to shocks. You get this from windy, you get them from if they're, the roots are getting only one side of the plant is actually getting moisture, uh, water uptake as well. But they looked into this and they actually decided, well, can we replicate this in a bottle? And by doing a number of commuter algorithms, working with TO scientists, the chemists, the designers, industrial designers, they actually came up with strategies to saving 250 tonnes of material a year for the first iteration. So to me, that's a great example because it doesn't just think of a technical solution. It's got an aesthetic one as well. And a lot of things that people forget, especially in innovation and also in, especially in biomimicry and biomimetics is can it be made? Because sometimes the, the idea is amazing, but it's going to cost 10 times more to manufacture it because you have to either make up a new manufacturing technique, which how are you going to roll that around the world? So it's thinking about the things, where can we do this in the right place throughout mm. the system? And this is where 3D printing's helping, isn't it? it? Even for things like buildings and bridges and so on, um, that you can create the shape, perhaps mimicking um, the outer structure of a, of a, um, a plant, um, and then form that design out of whatever materials you, you need to use. Yeah, I mean, you could even take that farther. So there's um, a research project led by um, Dr. Rupert Soar in Nottingham Trent, and he's been working with MIT and Harvard in the past, and he's looking at 3D printing with termites now. So how can you learn the way that they are basically little agents, they commutating together, mm -hmm. and this is an active system where 3D printing is passive. So can you build something that's actively learning from the environment as it goes? Now, to work with, he's currently working with, with the termites, so you can learn, he'll put down some blobs of material and see if they'll take it away so you can actually start learning and how they're constructing because these fungus farming termites actually build determined on gas and moisture levels and airflow so he's starting to learn how they construct so right. you effectively could do that for buildings um, mm -hmm. you know beams in a building as well as you know all the way down to medical applications of um, bone regrowth mm. yeah which is another uh, well I think that's where 3D printing was um, kind of um, getting most uptake, wasn't it, in, it, in the early days, um, was in, um, you know, bespoke um, bone replacements and joint replacements and so on. Um, so what about examples of materials then that have been inspired by biomimetics? I mean, obviously you can't see this in the, on the podcast, but if you look at um, the shiny shirt surface, shiny surface this shiny surface in shells the and you know especially in the mother of pearl you find it in um, abalone shells as well as uh, nautilus and this is actually um, a material that's very very similar to 98 percent similar to chalk but it self repairs at ambient temperatures just because the two percent of the proteins in there and there's little plates aligning across now we've got um self-repair materials already but to do that in ambient conditions you know it could be you know, mobile phones not smashing anymore, glass on aircraft or um, windows that are self-repair um, all the time. I mean, I'd never have a problem of it breaking my phone because I lose them more often than actually um, breaking. But that's kind of things. Other examples is there's an entire research uh, laboratory at um, Sheffield Hallam looking at exotic materials. Now, exotic materials are materials that have properties that are impact protection. And what happens is when you pull them, stretch them they actually get thicker instead of thinner so you find them in some leaves and um, 
cat skin, don't recommend shaving a cat for this, but if you do, Catherine Wheatman told you to. Um, <laughs> I'm staying absolutely silent. <laughs> uh, cow udders, cork, um, and even the inside of the um, your cartilage hip and your hip bones have actually got this type of material. So they've been using it for impacting crash helmets and underside car blast protection from your bomb proof, even down to smart band bandages in medical applications, holding pipes together, because it's great once you start weaving this um, material together, um, you get a variety of resources. Even the uh, Japanese um, space agency used it as a way to fold up their um, solar panels. Right. By looking to very exotic exotics. So it's a fascinating way, and it's a great way to keep yourself busy by doing some origami. Yes, I was, I, was, I was looking at the intricacy of that fold, and um, it would be great because that's a couple of props you've used now. So um, maybe we could talk afterwards about getting some um, photos of those that we could put in the show notes so people can see. Because that, that origami um, paper thing was, uh, uh, you know, really, really brought brought to life what you were talking about. So are there any other materials that, um, you know, have inspired really interesting innovations? I mean, another area is actually looking into colour. So colour and nature, um, you know, colour's determined by the light reflecting off it. Um, and it's through, you know, we like using lots of chemicals for either painting it on or bleaching it, washing it. Whereas in the natural world, you, you've got pigments, bioluminescence, and structural colour. Now, a lot of companies have been looking into structural colour, specifically looking at things like the blue morpho butterfly, which is actually brown, but because of the way the, if you go down to the, the micro nanoscale, you've got these little Christmas tree-like filaments, and they actually then reflect back the blue light and absorb the rest. And companies like General Electric have been looking into how to use this for better thermal imaging cameras. You've got textile manufacturers looking at this, so you're not making any dyes that the clothes will just change colour depending on how bright it is. Even Lexus making, making a, a series of lacquers for their, one of their cars. It's basically nine different layers. There's no colour in there. It's just these crystals. Um, and even down to Qualcomm, who make screens for computers and te technology are looking at kind of in the future. We make brighter screens by looking to structural colour. You get even things like edible structural colour coming around by researchers at Cambridge making this um, kind of film that you paste on. They're looking at, so you could have a label of a chocolate bar and the label is on the chocolate bar itself. So that was one of the things they're playing with by looking at structural colour based on this um, type of um, berry. Wow. So that could, I'm, I'm guessing, in the, that that's kind of sounding quite um expensive in terms of the the examples that you're giving are sort of top-end brands um so i guess that's a way of delivering a more individualized or you know unique experience for people um you know with the lexus lacquer and so on um that kind of sounds like a um you know here's something to make to make you stand out which um i guess is you know for a lot of a lot of high-end products that's what it needs to do isn't it is kind of um you know Look! Look at me! I'm, <laughs> I'm different. I don't just have an expensive car, but I've got an expensive car that seems to change change colour. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose there's a moral thing to that, but you got to also realise that a lot of these technologies will trickle down. Yeah. I mean, um, a lot of people talk about, you know, you shouldn't work with the military and because of the negative things, you know, the killing of people. But if you look into the engineering side of things and the technology development, a lot of work that's gone into that is now filtered down into our everyday lives from the internet, from, you know, a lot of the technologies we find in our smartphones, our clothing, you know, even Velcro was popularized because of the um, space from NASA mm. as well. So, yes, it's not maybe doing things totally in a lot of people's moral compass, but there are certain things they are doing. So helping set up refugee camps, those researchers developing a way to put vertical wind towers together, looking at how fish swarm. So you can put them very close together in anywhere in the world, obviously where there's wind, and it will generate electricity very quickly. So where you're setting up camps and all these kinds of things, instead of having to figure out bringing in huge generators, you can get in there straight away, build these up as well, you know, with solar arrays and various other applications. Yeah, it's just amazing how many uh, examples there are. So being critical about some of those examples that we just gave, um, you know, that, that seem to be perhaps even encouraging consumption rather than um, reducing it or slowing down um, the economy. What a, the, There must be a good range of examples that are helping sustainability and helping us extract fewer materials or um, keep them in use for longer. So, um, Perhaps pull out a few a few examples of that. You know, if, if we're going to challenge biomimicry for how is it improving sustainability, what what would you say about that? Yeah, I would actually say that not a lot of biomimicry is moving along the sustainability lines. If you take it as the way, because when I was always um, taught about sustainability when I was younger, it's, it's a three-legged stool. So you should always look at focusing on all of, we should focus on all of them. And that way, and a lot of biomimicry sense to be either the environmental or ecological approaches, which is great. You know, I, I run an environmental design consultancy and this is the way, I, but it's kind of this, it's down to this, how are you badging it? And a lot of people, you know, you want to move away from sustainability now because it's, again, it's a fuzzy language. I, I'm more focused on looking into kind of regenerative systems with the work we're doing, looking into things like um, ecosystem services and building in um, biophilic models into them as well. Um, so there are a number of models out there that have been created for this. You know, you've got a model um, looking at food webs, brilliant one that's in, currently being pushed out by Georgia Tech. So they've been studying a food web um, and the things that, the flows of energy and information from nature, and then comparing that against the uh, industrial ecosystems and then seeing where how they work and how they don't work and then you can then build in the elements for improvement so it's going all the way back to what i talked about at the beginning is it allows them to instead of saying right let's put new manufacturing in it might well be how do we deal with our wastes materials waste affluence you know carbon capture all these different things as well and you can actually start doing that for a city um, interface the carpet manufacturer they've been doing brilliant work of looking to minimize the uh, the waste of tiles. So the, the story goes that they went for a walk in the fruit, the woods with um, David Oakley, but actually 
it was um, David Oakley designs were really, especially David Oakley himself was fascinated by the changing patterns down at the microscopic level of looking into fibres. And that's where he came up with this um, carpet tile where instead of you having to have runoffs of carpet tiles that then fit, so you have a lot of wastage, he designed uh, them that allowed them to just be random. And that was down to the random patterns found in fibres. And that's very, very good. They even went further and designed a little um, sticker that's replacing the harmful glues to glue their um, materials together. And it's based on the um, gecko skin and how geckos stick to everything bar Teflon. So looking at those, yeah, using the van der Waals forces to, and they're really, so those kind of elements as well, you know, got Michael Pollan designing a lot of his project, all, all his work is about environmental design. And I think it's down to badging. I think we shouldn't, we've got this worry and I got this worry that biomimicry is going to be pushed out as this massive improvement in sustainability, but actually we need to focus on what we're really good at is solving those technical challenges and looking at how to improve environmental design, um, you know, improving the uh, ecosystems and then moving towards mm. kind of regenerative futures, everything else. I mean, if we can find it, but it's even back to that thing I talked about making sure you design it right, manufacture it and will it make money or save money for the business that it needs to then consider all those different angles. And is that too many focus points for a company and let to look at, including the social angles as well right now, or is that something they can transition towards? Yeah, well, I, th I think maybe that's what puts some companies off looking at circular approaches and biomimicry approaches and so on, is it seems too complicated. But I think in all things, you can kind of, um, you know, you can start somewhere and start to understand it a bit better, look at the opportunities. And as long as you don't just then jump in with both feet without thinking of the system implications as you said at the beginning um you know then once once you start to set your mind in a direction then you know your radar's on and you're much more likely to start to see how it can fit into the into the business or into the product design or whatever but just coming um back a second richard um you used a word there that i want to um ask you to unpack for people which was biophilic um, so what, what does that mean for people who are new to, to all this concept? So biophilia is kind of our, our intrinsic connection to nature. It comes about by, it's called the Savannah theory, where we, back to when you know, Homo sapiens first left Africa, we've always been connected to living on the plains, but also in forests, and this kind of a connection to um, the natural world. Biophilic design is very much about integrating that. So it's about designing in with plants in the buildings, so looking at greenery, but also green colour, natural light, um, putting in natural forms, connecting to the natural world through materials as well. So having natural materials around. And, you know, they're finding that actually by putting in elements of this, you're actually reducing stress for people in buildings. But then if you start building in this kind of elements externally as well into our cities, You've got elements there where it's not only improving human health, but the natural world as well. So we should be building this, working in with nature at the grander scale. There's a really interesting, you know, um, Stephen Kellert's got about 75 patterns in his work, which explain a lot of um, different areas. Um, down to Terrapin Bright Green, I've got 14 patterns for biophilic design. And they do very much overlap. The same with biomimicry and ecological design as well. A regenerative design they're all got these overlaps and they should all be working um together 
as mm. well as the circular economy. Yeah, I remember when forward. I was doing my permaculture course, um, there was a lot of focus on patterns from nature and how to use those in, in permaculture design. Again, gives you a new perspective on, on how, to, how to look at things. So where are we going with this in the future, do you think, Richard? That's an interesting one. So it takes about 10 years for things to get to market. So I would honestly start looking into the new materials being created in universities right now. You know, these soft biomaterials or hard bio, the, the ones that allow us to replace existing ones. And there's great research into biomaterials for the medical industry. So think about how many, you know, bits of PPE, things in operations or, you know, general day-to-day -day being in a hospital setting that has to be burnt or disposed of replacing these with you know instead of fossil fuels that kind of areas you've got the smart materials coming out you know that allow us to move towards a circular economy as well that building in memory and information into them kind of the internet of things with stuff um and i, th I think we're seeing as well a big big shift to understanding how the natural world works a lot more mm. either the mathematics behind it you know the santa fe institute in the US have been doing great work of the study of um, city growth and biological growth. And then our understanding of ecosystems and now we can build these into cities as well. Yeah. But what one of the small, other areas, if you go all the way further down, is our, um, you know, making nanomaterials. Mm. Understanding at the small scale how things work, you know, so I gave the example earlier of, um, you, you know, self-repairing materials based on nacre, um, mother of pearl. By going and looking at other materials like that, you can make small-scale, you know, fuel cells based on hierarchical structures. And you can look at the, you know the branching of trees or the branching in our in mammalian lungs to build these kind mm. of storage solutions. So that's for the. I think the future is combining. The, I mean, I, I like this phrase, the fourth industrial revolution. It doesn't intrinsically say it's about biomimicry, but it's about the connection between biology, technology, you know, the cyber world and the physical. And it can only help if we get biomimicry placed in the right area of that to ensure that it's towards a, you know, a regenerative and carbon negative future. Yeah, so there's some fascinating uh, developments there starting to come through that could really revolutionise the way we think about design of all sorts of things. Um, so it sounds like a, um, a really good area for people just starting out to um, try and build into their you know, career um, learning and career development um, to kind of, um, even if you're only looking at this from a, an external perspective, you need, you know, so that you can tap into expertise like yours. You don't necessarily need to be an expert in everything to um, to make it available to your, um, your company or your, um, um, you know, your, your organization's outlook. So if people are looking to use biomimicry to inspire circular or more sustainable approaches, where would they, where would you suggest they get started? What should they do first to kind of incorporate it in their thinking? I was saying the first thing is look around them where they are and understand how things work. You know, we're always looking at solving problems and understand how things work or in the majority of our cases, how things break. <laughs> So actually then, just starting off that way, you could look at your hands and your skin and just delving a bit deeper. Um, you know, there's a great um, journal that comes out quarterly called Zygot um, Quarterly, funnily enough. Um, 
another a very good bunch of journals if you search in the phrases biomimicry and biomimetics and bioinspiration. Um, the Biomimicry Institute in the US are pushing a lot of um, work out with design competitions as well. Um, there's actually going to be a, a European one coming up very, very soon, focusing on swarms and collaboration. And it's, it's just a case of going out there and searching how things work. There's a lot, so many journal papers, so many people looking into tools. I mean, I wouldn't get people focusing on having a tool, a method, because you should have the right methodology and the right tool for once you understand what problem you're trying to solve. So you should yeah. arm yourself with a few different ways of looking at it. Do you look into structural materials? Do you look into, you know, hierarchical systems in the natural world? Are you looking into just structural? And then really focus down into those specific areas. Um, yeah, speak to biologists, speak to ecologists, speak to myself, obviously, <laughs> and see where you can start. But I, I, I often run workshops by getting people just to looking at, yeah, let's study the different types of um, branching and plant leaves. Mm. So, exam, you know, you could look into, we came up with design, working with a product designer for a uh, water, with the water street trees without getting things stuck in it, like high heels and other sticks and things like that. And I, I started looking, looking at um, the Amazon water lily, so underneath of that and the structure and the hierarchy there and the branching. So it's amazing what you find when you just delve down, buy yourself a cheap USB microscope or just start exploring things. Start taking pictures and iNaturalist as you're walking around your neighbourhood and then start seeing, well, this thing is adapted very well to living here. I wonder why. Yeah, so it's more about developing the curiosity yourself and starting to think deeper than the surface, surface level of, of, you know, what's in nature. And starting yeah, because we've all got pictures just, behind just us, you, you know. Did, you know how, how does this work? How does this connect with um, its environment and so on? And, and starting to think a bit a bit deeper. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've got in my desk here a little moss terrarium, and moss is brilliant. This kind of sphagnum moss is brilliant because it's antibacterial. It absorbs a lot of moisture. Um, it was used in World War One and Two as um, battlefield wooden dressing. So should we use this, use that as a biomaterial, or could we actually start building that into something where we're actually understanding the mechanics of that? Mm. I was um, reading a book called Braiding Sweetgrass, which is by a botanist in, in uh, the USA who has a Native American heritage. She's weaving together the stories of indigenous knowledge, ooh, <laughs> indigenous knowledge and science and kind of, um, you know, showing how the two are very complementary and we've probably known all this stuff for a lot longer than we realized um, but she was giving the example of uh, of lichen and how it's actually two symbiotic um, plants um, a, uh, a fungus and I forgot what the other oh an algae a fungus and an algae that uh, egg, that coexist Richard who would you recommend as a future guest for the podcast to help us get deeper into sustainability and the circular economy and so on I would recommend a good friend of mine called um, it's Professor Peter Head, who um, used to be an engineer at Arup and now leads a sustainability regenerative practice called Resilience Brokers and the Ecological Sequestration Trust. Um, Peter's a brilliant thinker. He, he adopted biomimicry and various principles of biomimicry and circular economy for designing an eco-city in China 
and has been doing this ever since. And he's now actually leading a project, collective intelligence called the Pivot Projects. Great. So um, I'll um, follow up on that and um, and invite Peter to um, tell us more about that. So Richard, how can people find out more about you and Biomimicry Innovation Lab? Um, so our website's biomimicryinnovationlab.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. I've even set up a TikTok account. I've not yet used that. But um, yeah, just search for Biomimicry Innovation Lab across all these different platforms. I regularly post about interesting developments, both in industry and academia. Um, and we run workshops as well. We've got a um, number of workshops coming up um, in the UK in the end of November, looking one at soil science with Good Food York, another one on um, regenerative and carbon negative cities as well, which we'll be advertising. And yeah, just come check us out and drop us questions. Myself or any members of the team we be more than happy to um, help ask, answer any queries you've got. Great stuff. Thank you. So I'll put those links in the show notes so people can look you up and, and uh, get in touch if they want some of your insight and expertise to help them think about how to use biomimicry approaches to improve um, ecological or, um, or social impact, I guess. Thank you very much, Richard. That's been really interesting um, chatting again. And um, uh, I'm sure we'll be, be uh, meeting up in the near future, even if it's still virtually during lockdown. No, perfect. Thank you very much for having me, Catherine. Thank you. What I took away is that biomimicry isn't a box of ready-made solutions, but is more of a lens you can apply to think differently about how to design objects or processes, how to choose materials, or to design systems of interaction and coexistence. And, a bit like the circular economy, biomimicry approaches can be used in ways that don't improve sustainability, as with the car lacquer example that Richard gave us. Biomimicry is often described as the science of applying nature-inspired design in human engineering and invention to solve human problems. It can, and I would argue it should, be helping us to work with and to regenerate nature, rather than just to learn from nature to further encourage consumption through novelty or reducing costs. Biomimicry can help us design in ways that are more aerodynamic, stronger, lighter and more flexible. Ways that are, that are energy and resource efficient, self-healing, improve circulation and flow and much, much more. It's inspiring to hear how much we can learn from nature and about some of the amazing breakthroughs happening all around the world. That's it for this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you use circular, sustainable approaches to make a better world for people, planet and your business. Get in touch via the website or connect with me on LinkedIn. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one or buy the new edition of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business, which takes you through the concepts and practicalities, including lots of real examples from around the world. Make sure you get the edition with the orange cover, 
which has a new chapter on packaging, lots of extra examples and updated research in every chapter. You can find resources and links mentioned in today's episode, as well as a transcript of the conversation at rethinkglobal.info, where you can find out how we help you succeed with Circular. <laughs>